from UNH, Cooperative Extension. This is Over Informed on IPM. Hello, podcast listeners. For this week's episode, I'm in over my head. I'm out of my element. But I know that last year's spring was long and cold and wet, so I know we will be seeing higher rates of fungal infections in crops like blueberry. I personally saw a lot of mummyberry in our early blooming varieties here in Durham last year. It was a real bummer. Those little shriveled gray fruit make picking hard. (laughs) because the weather was so gnarly during bloom last year and because I know that prime time for mummy berry infections happened during bloom I'm sure I wasn't the only one who was bummed out by all those shriveled gray blueberries in their fields last year so I think I need to understand this disease a little better and I really need some help from my colleagues I turned to a few experts in the area to help explain this situation to me I'm Ann Hazelrig. I'm a plant pathologist with University of Vermont, and I run the plant diagnostic clinic. So mummyberry is a fungal disease of blueberries that we really had a big problem with last year because it's, it likes cool, wet conditions in the spring. So I suspect if we have the same thing uh, this spring, we'll see a lot of mummyberry because there was a lot of inoculum or spores of the disease. So it's a fungus disease that overwinters on these mummified berries underneath the bushes, basically. And right around the time that the forsythias bloom, these mummies produce a fruiting body called an apothecia that can produce millions of spores. And these spores during wet, cool conditions, carried by wind currents, rain splash, stuff like that, and they're carried to the new shoots and they cause a shoot blight. You know, it's tricky sometimes to figure out if what you're seeing a shoot blight is caused by frost. It can look like frost or it can look like another fungus disease called botrytis that is not as impactful as the mummy berry. But so anyway, the spores uh, from these mummies go to the new shoots. They cause a shoot blight. And then it's an interesting fungus disease because it has two different spore types. So that's the first spore type. Then a second spore type is produced on these blighted shoots that are um, carried often, well, by wind currents, but often by bees uh, to the new flowers. And so that's where the berries become infected is through these flower infections of this other kind of spore. At first, you know, you look, it looks like your blueberries are just fine, but as season goes on, these infected blooms, the berries start shriveling, they look a little off color, and that's when you know you've, you've had a mummy berry infection. Okay, so walk, walk me through like a couple of seasons. So like people would definitely have seen that second form that you were talking about, that mummy berry that's yes. in the canopy. So maybe that's something people have seen and they're like, yeah, I can deal with a little bit of that. But since last year was so bad, maybe they saw more mummies in the field last year. This year they're looking at their shoots, maybe they're pruning in in this time of like this time of year and saying, oh, I'm seeing a lot of winter injury. Like is, at what point should people say like, oh wow, like I really need to do something. (laughs) Like what are you looking for? Yeah, that should have been a decision last year. And I would hope that uh, if a grower had a pretty severe 
infection last year, they should be ready for it again this year. If you did have a severe infection, that means you're going to have a lot of overwintering mummies. I did talk to some small home gardeners that, you know, they only had a few bushes and they were able to pick off those infected berries. So if you could do that, then you eliminate those overwintering mummies. But commercial growers really don't have the time to do, you know, an acre of blueberries that way. One thing we can do is try to disrupt those mummies by raking under the bushes. Typically those apothecia, the fruiting bodies are formed right around the time forsythias are blooming. So in Burlington, they're blooming right now. We may be on the late side, but that's something they can do before the forsythias bloom. Really good method is to bury those mummies. Uh, we always recommend putting on a two-inch layer of mulch, especially if they've had a bad year the year before, and that covers up those mummies so they can't fruit. The other thing people can do is use urea earlier in the season to sort of burn out those mummies. But um, And that urea application, that's applied to the, to the ground? Like yes. How is that applied? Right, right, to the ground. Okay. Um, yeah, those are the things they should be thinking about now. And then watching as, you know, our new leaves are coming out, watching for this shoot blight. The other thing, uh, if you're a commercial grower, this is one that um, uh, you can protect the new tissue with fungicides. If you did have a, a heavy disease uh, situation last year um, and they've done the cultural practices, the next step is using a fungicide. And there are fungicides used to protect that shoot blight phase and then another uh, fungicide they can use or the, uh, maybe the same one during the blossom phase. So there are lots of cultural practices uh, to reduce disease pressure and fungicides to protect plants during periods of severe disease pressure. You can find a list of resistant varieties in the New England Small Fruit Management Guide, as well as a list of crop protection products registered for use in blueberry. Anne mentioned that you might need to treat affected plants pretty frequently, at least weekly, before and during bloom. Now... We certainly avoid using insecticides during bloom to avoid non-target effects on our pollinator friends. Please do yourself a favor and listen to my conversation with Frank Drummond of the University of Maine about pollinators in wild blueberry. His description of how native bees do their work is, is a delight. You should, you should listen back. So we avoid using insecticides during bloom, but we've always felt pretty confident that our fungicides have minimal effects on these insects, especially on the adult forms. However, the more we learn, it sounds like there might be synergistic effects on bee offspring when multiple chemicals are brought back to the hive or back to the nest of bees. I turn to my colleague here at UNH Extension to unpack some of this information and decide what to make of all this. Hello, I'm Cheryl Smith. I'm the plant health specialist with Cooperative Extension and also director of the Plant Diagnostic Lab. Now, you all know I rely pretty heavily on my colleagues here at UNH to do my job, and a couple of colleagues around here are long-term extension folks with lots of knowledge and lots of history. Cheryl is one of those people, and I also one of those people who probably look a little younger 
than that history. And she probably gets a lot of that, uh, oh, you probably started here when you were a baby if you're even thinking about retirement. That's so crazy how UNH lets babies work there. Well, for Cheryl, that's kind of true. She did start at UNH when she was a baby. She got her PhD here at UNH with Bill McCarty studying apple scab, a fungal disease of apples that has a lot in common with mummyberry and blueberry. They're both fungal pathogens and they both overwinter on the orchard floor. So many of the cultural practices and chemical approaches are similar. I want to pull those, put those yeah. charts back up. So I went through the guide and I looked at to see what was most efficacious for um, mummyberry. Yeah, just, I mean, you just go right back up to, it pulls up, um, okay, so. I wish that they were organized by frat code. That would be, it, it so would, like seven, spare you seven from hearing how the sausage is made, but we kind of struggled to answer this question of how fungicides might impact pollinators by using Cornell's pesticide decision-making guide. In a nutshell, our conclusions were that fungicides are definitely not as great a risk to pollinators as insecticides. That's pretty obvious. Insecticides are, are created to kill insects. However, if bees are bringing home fungicides as well as sublethal amounts of some insecticides, their offspring might be challenged to detoxify all these chemicals at once. What we're talking about is honeybees bringing home nectar and pollen to their hive. Um, but we're also talking about native solitary bees uh, or subsocial bees who bring home pollen to their little tunnel they've built in the ground or um, in a stem, little, little homes they've built for their babies. This is where the synergistic effects of these combinations of chemicals come into play. There are concerns in three scenarios, actually. Um, bees are bringing home fungicides plus commonly used organophosphates, pyrethroids, neonicotinoids for insect pests of blueberry. However, these chemicals wouldn't be used in blueberry during bloom and probably wouldn't be used on farm until later in the season for blueberry and even for neighboring crops if you have a, a diversified farm. Uh, for early season mummy berry fungicide programs specifically, I'm not too worried about tank mixes or other chemicals applied to blueberry at that time of year. The second concern is if bees are bringing home fungicides as well as neonicotinoids they're picking up from other plants in the landscape. These products do have longevity in the field. These products also vary in their toxicity to bees, but again, detoxification can get challenging when there are multiple chemicals in the mix. The third concern is regarding synergistic effects of fungicides and commonly used organophosphates used for controlling varroa mites in managed honeybees. This concern, of course, only applies to managed honeybees and not native bees. On their own, these miticides are toxic to mites and not to bees because healthy bees are capable of quickly detoxifying these particular toxins. That's why they're used for this purpose. And the risk of using a miticide is greatly outweighed by the benefits here. Varroa mites are the number one cause of honeybee hive losses. And these enormous parasites transmit disease to honeybees. They suck out bee fat body. You should think of fat body kind of like insect livers. They're very important for detoxifying chemicals. So we find ourselves in this chicken egg situation here because fungicide exposure is only a problem when bees are exposed to multiple chemicals and the chemicals are there to re reduce the risk of mite parasites that deplete bees toxification abilities. What to make of this? So I guess I'd look at it and say, okay, so if you hives and it's, it's during bloom, 
think about which which product you're going to apply during bloom or maybe not put something on during bloom. So again, okay, so you know, look- best practice is to maintain all the best cultural practices to avoid having to use pesticides and only using pesticides if you really need to. If you do need to use pesticides, make sure you're using the most efficacious approach and rotate your products to avoid resistance developing in the fungus. Sounds easy, right? Back to my conversation with Cheryl, and I will note that she refers to shoot blight as primary infection and blossom blight as secondary infection. And hey, if you have a copy of the small fruit guide handy, you could follow along with us as we go through the efficacy table. So if somebody had a mummy berry problem last year, I would probably tell them that their first spray that they should go in with would be Indar. And that's a, that's a frac three. Yep. So, so if you scroll down, that's frac three. The Indar is going to be effective against both primary and secondary, okay? But I know the label says something about using it only X number of times. You wouldn't want to rotate that with Inspire Super because it's got a group three in it. I mean, technically, you're not really rotating. And then you look at something like Luna Tranquility, and it's very efficacious. So it is possible to rotate Luna Tranquility with Indar. Now, you've also got uh, Double Nickel, which has... You know, that's a possibility of rotating that in there, too. Mm-hmm. Now, is it as good? No, but it's pretty good. I'm just going to jump in and interrupt this conversation to mention that double nickel is a biopesticide. Actually, it's a bacterium, which basically works to outcompete pathogens um, that live on and in plants and prevents infections. Cheryl mentioned that tank mixes of double nickel and quava have been used pretty successfully with fire blight management in Apple. So definitely a major player in fighting plant disease. So the other one, so as we keep going down through the charts, so you've got Indar, you've got a possibility of using Luna Tranquility. The other one that's been around for a long period of time is Orbiter Tilt, but that's a group three too, so you're really not rotating. Basically, all the group threes are very efficacious, but you want to be able to rotate that in with something else. Now, what is Regalia? Regalia is, is, a, is a plant activator. So that's, that's right, that's right. That's the extract of giant hogweed. And how, how is that supposed to work as far as protecting a plant from? You got to get that on as soon as new growth starts because it's a plant activator. You can't put it on like two days before you expect an infection because it's, it's got to turn on the plant defense mechanisms. And then mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's probably got a every two week label on it. I, I would have to look at it to see specifically. Uh, I'd want to get that on like early and be able to get you know two applications, maybe three applications on before you really need it. So it's labeled in blueberries. It's got, it's got some decent efficacy, supposedly against mummy berry. So lower toxicity. So you've got fenhexamid. So Captivate is fenhexamid plus Captan. And if you look right above it, you've got fenhexamid. So if somebody wants to try and control it with very, very low risk and very low toxicity, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps the Captivate, but it only has one hatch mark. So it is not terribly effective. So another thing to consider here when you were considering 
pollinator protection is that establishing pollinator habitat is another tool in your arsenal. These habitats provide pesticide-free safe zones, rich with overwintering habitat and flowering plants full of nectar and pollen. If we're concerned about chemicals and the food bees are bringing home, it certainly wouldn't hurt to make sure they've got plenty of clean, healthy pollen over the course of a season. There are more benefits to consider, which I discussed during a conversation with Rufus Isaacs, an entomologist and fruit specialist at Michigan State University. Our conversation was rudely interrupted by a lagging Zoom call, which I'm sure you will recognize as a quintessential occurrence in this, the spring of 2020. I'm getting kind of a weird distortion. Is your internet connection? Um, let me look. Oh, wait, you're back. Can you hear me? Yes, that's better. It could be my daughter logging onto Netflix that's uh, <laughs> using up our bandwidth. Yeah, so we, we have definitely found farms where there's opportunities for putting pollinator habitat in, and they might have a, like a low spot that's much more likely to get frost damage in the spring, so they're not going to grow blueberries there, or an area that's perhaps difficult to acidify to the right pH. Um, some areas are just where they might move the harvesters around and some of the machinery some little corners of fields. So it's been hard to get big areas, but there are some opportunities to fit those little patches in. Our NRCS program here through the Farm Service Agency, there's an opportunity to get some payments for putting in, it's a minimum of two acres that they have to find around the farm and then they can get paid for that. Multiple farmers have been able to find a couple of acres on the farm to establish pollinator habitat. This is something we often need to highlight when we're talking about these plantings. So the ones that we've focused on here in some of the research we've done in Michigan have been designed to bloom after blueberries have finished blooming. So they're starting in maybe mid-June and providing flowers for bees to visit through July and into August and then all the goldenrod in September. We're not trying to boost bees' nutrition during blueberry bloom. Um, because we, partly because we want them to visit the flowers and also partly because it's hard to get like annual or annually blooming plants that will bloom that early. Um, maybe trees and shrubs will do it, but most of the stuff that we're planting out as seeds is more of a middle to late season bloom. And so this is for the bees like the bumblebees, for example, that will visit blueberries really well during the period that they're in flower, but then they need food through the rest of the summer and into the autumn. And if they don't have if they don't have it so much during the summer, they're not gonna make as many queens, they won't build as many workers, and they won't persist as much in the landscape. So I sort of see it as making a, a long-term landscape of flowers being available so that these insects always have something that they can feed from. I also don't see this necessarily on a big farm as, as replacing honeybees. People are, people are still bringing in honeybees and we found that the, the wildflower plantings boosted those bees that provide like the extra, maybe the extra 20% of berry size and yield that you would get from having really good pollination over and above what the honeybees were able to provide. It's just like with integrated pest management. We're not relying on just one approach to getting the flowers pollinated. We're trying to put some different things into the farm so that each year we get reliable pollination and we're more likely to get a good yield of, of marketable berries than if we're only relying on one thing that works most years. Well, something I've been kind of 
and I can't have been making the point. I was like, you know how crappy our spring was this year? Like who was out working those flowers? It was the bumblebees, you know, like these little tanks. Like, do you yep. see um, any of the pollinator habitats work on maybe like the species composition that would give you more resilience in extreme weather conditions? Well, it's funny you should ask that because when we, when we were doing that work that I mentioned earlier, we had, we had two years where the bee population had increased and we were able to measure yields. In the year when it was like more normal weather, we got about a, say, a 10 to 15% increase in yield. In the year, I think it was 2012, we had a really warm spring and then had a frost. The yields of blueberries were down across the state, but if you look at the percent increase in yield that we got from having wildflower plantings, and especially if you look at the price of blueberries that year because the supply was down and the price went up, it's actually much more of an economic benefit on those years that are the kind of odd years where supply is shorter. And yeah, I think that speaks to resiliency too, that you're more likely to get a decent yield on those more difficult years when you've got this sort of backup of wild bees doing, doing the work. bumblebees man they are little flying tanks um a side note here as well i remember asking rufus a few years ago about unexpected benefits from his wildflower work in terms of farmer adoption and he mentioned another project with sunflower plantings that were very popular among deer hunters for their ability to attract wildlife both small and large I'm also including some resources from Kathy Neal on our extension website with some guidance on how to establish wildflower plantings in the Northeast. But the best advice Kathy will give you is have perseverance. Plantings will take a year or two to establish, so power through those weedy years. And also before I conclude here, I do have to point out that some other potential fungal pathogens could be in the mix. Phomopsis, for one, could also benefit from cool, wet springs. So you may need to seek the help of your neighborhood extension plant pathologist to correctly identify any pest problems. You know too here, thanks to Anne Hazelrig of Vermont and our very own Cheryl Smith of New Hampshire. But every state has a few of them, so go ahead, reach out to Extension if you have any questions. Uh, thanks to Rufus Isaacs of Michigan State university and a very special thanks to jason lightbound who wrote and performed our theme music over informed on ipm is a production of university of new hampshire cooperative extension an equal opportunity educator and employer all music is used by permission or by Creative Commons licensing. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, New Hampshire counties, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.eu.
say it is NC, so it's not classified, mm -hmm. but you know, double nickels of bacillus, amyloquia fessens, and actinovitis streptomyces viridis, I think. So, okay, okay, okay. That makes sense now. Actinovate. I'm writing it down. <sighs> and it, you know, it is in the in the guide, and it's it's okay against primary scab. I mean, primary scab. Geez, primary um, mummy berry. It's got you know two hatch marks, and that's about the only thing that it's effective against. So, so it's a possibility, you know. I mean, do you think like with those things, it's kind of like oh, it gets two hatch marks.